This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome to ACT OUT, an education through action project, a service learning and volunteer fair. My name is Mike McGuire. Uh, my students and I put this event together as a culmination of a semester's worth of service learning work. We've been working together for the last 15 weeks, researching, writing, learning about a number of social justice, environmental, and humanitarian concerns. Uh, at the start of the semester, we all set out not to just learn about these issues, but to do something about them as well. And so this project was born. My students and I worked side by side during the first half of the semester. We packed specially formulated meal packs to provide 6,912 meals to children on the brink of starvation. We got up early one Saturday morning, toting bags and barrels of used shoes to a cold, dark warehouse in Alsip, where we sorted and prepared them for shipment to impoverished people in Uganda. We drove to an industrial park behind Midway Airport, where we worked side-by-side side in an assembly line fashion, shoveling 3,700 pounds of dried pasta from enormous cardboard boxes, packaging it into two-pound bags for delivery to food pantries serving people struggling with food insecurity in our very neighborhoods. While doing this work together, we learned many things about the issues we are living with, about doing something about those issues, about each other, and about ourselves. It's been a wonderful experience. Most recently, students have been working on service learning projects of their own design in partnership with amazing local organizations, many of whom are represented here over the course of the next two days. I want to thank each of them for taking time from their very busy schedules to be with us here today and to encourage you to stop at each of their tables to learn about the good work that they are doing and how you too can get involved. <clears throat> My students tell me that I tend to talk too much, right? <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I'm trying to do more and talk less this semester. Right now, I'd like to give someone else a chance to talk, someone who does so much on their own as well. To kick this event off right, I've invited one of my dear friends and most esteemed colleagues to talk with us today. If you spend any time on campus at all, you likely know her very well. She's a fantastic history teacher, a leader at our college, the first to step up when a job needs to get done, and a personal inspiration to me every day. Please welcome Mary Fafleese. Lovely introduction. Hi, everybody. I don't know what more I need to say after that. So my name is Mary Fifelice. Uh Please feel free to call me Mary. And uh, I tend to be fairly informal in my presentation style. So if you've got a question on something that I'm, I'm bringing up, please uh, just feel free to raise your hand or just call out at any point. Um, first of all, I want to commend all of you and, and commend Mike for what a fantastic job. I've been, as his office mate, I've been kind of getting the... Uh, the rundown of what you folks have been doing all semester, and I think it's wonderful. What a wonderful opportunity for all of you, and I'm so pleased to be able to share in it with you. I'd like to ask you, start off by asking you guys a question. How many of you in here have volunteered before, either on a regular basis or just on your own, up outside of the classroom? Can I ask in what capacity, if you don't mind? Uh, should I maybe bring the microphone over? So <laughs> I'm going to put you on the spot. I was a candy striper at Christ Hospital. Oh, so I do a mission trip every summer with my youth group. And where do you usually go? Harlan, Kentucky. Great. Anybody else in here? Missing? Yes. 
Oh, well, I, I was involved with, with some conspiracy groups. Volunteer service of some kind, okay. Uh, and what can I ask? What did you um, What did you guys get out of it? The most, like, what did you enjoy about it the most? The people were just grateful. Yeah, seeing how they reacted. Seeing how they reacted. How they reacted to the help that you were giving. That's great. That's I would kind of echo that that sentiment. And I don't, if I missed anybody, I apologize. Um, so. I, this is a great segue because this, when this young lady said that she uh, was a candy striper, I was as well, and at Christ Hospital too. Um, so I guess if I ask myself why do I try to be of service and you know, you know, how have these things shaped my life, I think part of it is just personality type. I've always been the kind of person I, I do enjoy volunteering. I do enjoy uh, giving back. I think largely because I've gotten so much out of it myself personally, probably more than, than giving actually. Um, and I think my, my family circumstances also affected me in that way, too. My mom used to always say to me that there's always somebody who's better off than you and somebody who's, who's worse off than you. Always someone smarter, always someone not as smart, etc. And so I've always kind of felt like I have had a lot in my life. I've always been very, very grateful for what I've had. Um, and so I've wanted to give back to others. I also remember reading in a book um, this woman who was describing to the, the female character, the lead character, about how she wanted to lead what she called an eminently useful life, and that when she died that she would like to see that on her tombstone, having led an eminently useful life. And I liked that. I liked the idea of that, of leading a useful life. I don't want to go through my life and, and be hopefully somewhere at 80 or 85 or 90, God willing, and looking back and say, well, what did I do? What did I accomplish? What was the point of my time here? And so I think volunteering and being of service to others has kind of helped me do that. Also, I think that just our own circumstances, you know, in the United States, I tend to believe that we live in a pretty self-centered society. Don't get me wrong, other societies are self-centered too, but I think we're, we're particularly good at it here. It kind of tends to be all about me. And so I like to volunteer because it helps me remind myself that it's not just all about me, it's about others as well. And obviously there are others in the room that feel the same way. So just getting into, I'm going to pull up a small little brief, some photographs here to show you. I call this living to serve or serving to live. Getting a little philosophical on you at 2.30 in the afternoon. So I pulled up my candy striper. Uh, this is the, when I Googled in candy stripers, a bunch of interesting images came up, none of whom we're going to discuss right now, none of which we'll discuss because some of them were not quite appropriate for the, the, this, uh, this afternoon's presentation. But yeah, this is, I really wanted to wear this uniform. I remember having been in the hospital with my mom. Um, she was hospitalized quite a bit when I was in high school. And I would see, uh, see the, the, the younger girls in their candy striper uniforms, and I, I really wanted one. Not that they're particularly fashionable, but I just really liked, I really liked, I wanted to wear one and, and be of service. So I, I started volunteering at Christ Hospital in, in admitting. And they would have me transporting patients, you know, back and forth, up to their rooms or wherever. And uh, one little experience happened there that kind of taught me a lesson. Um, they had me answering phones. And so I answered the phone, and it was a doctor who was calling about a patient. And I, I put the doctor, I said, yes, I'll get somebody for you. And because I, I admit it publicly, I have ADD, put the phone down and, and forgot to get someone to go help the doctor. Well, I had also had neglected to put the doctor on hold. So the doctor could hear how everybody in the room, all like the admit, admitting um, uh, workers there were talking and having a, having a gay old time, apparently. And I was had gone off somewhere else to probably to take a patient upstairs and forgotten all about the doctor and his patients. 
Well, when I came back down uh, with my wheelchair, my empty wheelchair, I see the doctor showed up there yelling at all of the uh, the admitting uh, folks there who were like, well, we had a volunteer answer the phone and she clearly forgot to answer it or forgot to take care of your call. So uh, I didn't say anything then, but I felt really guilty about it. Like here was this person who probably could have been something very serious and I had them waiting on the phone for 20 minutes and, and didn't take care of it. So I, I kind of gathered up my courage and I was give, given a, a small break and went downstairs and I found him in the, uh, the uh, dining area. So I went up to him and I said, hi, Dr. So-and-so, I'm, I'm Mary and I'm the one who messed up. On, on, I didn't, I didn't forget about your phone call. I'm sorry I left you on hold. And he was very, actually, I was scared to death. I, guess I was like shaking. I didn't want to say a word to him. And he got up and he said, listen, it took a lot for you to get up to come over here and tell me that. A lot of character. And so I appreciate you doing that. And he's like, don't worry about it. It all worked out just fine. So I learned a lesson about that, about accountability and, and how to probably try to keep my own um, uh, wandering mind into better control. But uh, it was a good experience for me. And I also returned later on to Christ Hospital in college and was volunteering in the emergency room. Uh, so, my next opportunity area where I, I really learned a major life lesson in terms of service learning was when I had an opportunity in college myself to engage in a service learning activity in, in my American foreign policy class at Elmhurst College. And I had this professor who really changed my life. She made an enormous impact on me. And she said that we were going to do this project. We had been talking about, and at the time this was about 1997, um, a few years after the conflict in Bosnia, but there were still lots of refugees coming out of the country into other European countries and now coming to the United States. And so my professor said that she wanted us to engage in a project in which we would help furnish an apartment for a group of Bosnian refugees. Now, just to kind of give you, I'm, I pulled up, I've got a map up here and then a map also of Bosnia. And I'm, the, the history of the Balkans is so convoluted that we would be here for probably weeks if not months, if not years, trying to get through it. So just to kind of give you a very quick synopsis, um, this is Bosnia-Herzegovina right here, which is part of the former Yugoslavia. And they had a, a war, you can call it a civil war, that began in 1992 that went on until 1995. And about almost a half a million refugees resulted out of this conflict. And you could talk about what it means to be a refugee till you're blue in the face. Right? You, can, you can watch um, uh, TV news excerpts on it. You can watch movies on it. You can do all sorts of things. And those can have a very profound impact on you, right? I've got some images here of some, of some refugees leaving, holding their belongings and, and trying to get out. Um, but when you realize what the enormity, what it really means to be a refugee, how you walk away with nothing, it was really driven home to me when we did this project we worked with the company that was called, a, a not-for-profit called Exodus, which is a subsidiary of World Relief. And they would basically take a family and help get them an apartment and help uh, fund the apartment, uh, furnish it and whatever the people needed, uh, and then welcome them to, to America. We had to go to the airport and actually welcome them and take them to their apartment. And you don't realize what you are taking for granted until you realize what it takes to furnish an apartment. You have to buy everything. I mean, think of it. Think of what you'd have to, st you're starting over from scratch. You're leaving your own place where you had everything, and you're walking away with all you can carry on your back. That's what it means to be a refugee. So what would you need? Can you call out a couple of things? Can you guys throw out a couple of things there? Pardon me? Money, okay. Money to buy things, but what actual tangible things do you need in your house? What would you need? If you, imagine if you were suddenly homeless one day. 
All you have are the clothes on your back. Pardon me? Furniture. What else? Food. Water, clothes. What else? A bed. Right? If you're going to cook that food, don't you need things to cook it with? Pots and pans, utensils, all those things. If you have, if you have children, babies, you need diapers. Right? You need all these things that you wouldn't even think about. I didn't realize that until we were engaged in this project, and I was realizing how much these people needed just to get a basic life going. We're not talking about, they weren't living like in the, the Ritz-Carlton. This was not the nicest apartment that we were giving these people. And the, the sad thing was, these folks had just, um, I, from what I understand, they were kind of an upper middle class uh, family. The, both, uh, the, the, doc, the mother, I think, was a, either a professor and the father was a lawyer. They had just built their dream home in Bosnia getting ready to, you know, really enjoy themselves, and then they were completely uprooted. Now they're coming to America. They have, they don't speak the language very well. He can't practice law because he doesn't speak English. You know, she can't walk into a university or college and start working. They had to work at more menial jobs, working as janitors, working in food service, things that they could do. So imagine what that would be like to do that. That lesson, I, I learned it far better having done that project than I ever would have learned it had I just watched maybe a documentary or something. It was, it was truly was a lesson that I took, a tangible lesson that I talk about every time I teach this, when I teach um, History of the World Since 45. I talk about this, this experience, because it had such a profound impact on me. So you don't quite realize what it means to be in that situation until you actually are there actually are in it and you see these people ha not having anything. I, I kind of wonder what happened to them. I wish I could find out actually how they're doing now and hopefully if their life has gotten, has gotten better, improved. My next uh, foray into some volunteer service was uh, sort of a, a mixed bag. This is kind of the downside and the upside. I, I learned good lessons and some, bad, some hard lessons from this one. Um, when I was in graduate school in, in 2000, uh, we had to do, as part of our, our, um, our internship for our, our second year of study, some foreign study experience, some study abroad experience. And I volunteered to work as a human rights monitor in Northern Ireland. Now, I'm not going to, another thing, you know, just like the Balkans, we could be here till tomorrow if I start talking about the history of Northern Ireland. We could probably be here till next year quite easily. But just to give you a very brief kind of synopsis of what it is, uh, if you look at the map up here, I don't want to get in the, let me come over on this side. If you look at the map here, uh, this, is, this is Ireland. Now, there are 26 counties in the south of Ireland that are made up of a majority of Catholics. In Northern Ireland, uh, it's, there are six counties in the north, and, and there is where, where things get interesting. You've got uh, six counties in which the majority of the population are Protestant, and they've had a history of complications, of troubles. As a matter of fact, the conflict has been called the Troubles. Um, largely, I think it has to do with who has power and who doesn't have power, who wants power, etc. It's a power struggle. Um, but in this case, I was going to act as a human rights monitor in this town here called Portadown, which is in County Armagh, which is part of the six counties of Northern Ireland. And our job was basically to just record what uh, the activities of the British Army during the summer. There's a particular season that's referred to as the marching season. And uh, during this season, Protestants, and I'm going to very much oversimplify this right now, Protestants march in Catholic neighborhoods, and um, it, usually trouble broke out. Things have gotten tremendously better since then. But, and so we were there as human rights monitors um, in order to see 
just kind of what the British Army was doing. Was it protecting the rights of the minority Catholics who were living in that area, etc.? So, uh, this was a, an issue where I, I found myself in kind of a complicated situation. I had gone there with the idea that I was volunteering my time for an organization that was supposed to be neutral. It was a human rights organization and, and proclaimed that it was a neutral, that it was not affiliated with either side. But once I got there, it became very apparent that we were very much, uh, that it was very much affiliated with, with the Catholic Republican side. When I say Republican, I don't mean like the Republican Party of this country. I mean Republican, which is a, a certain uh, political uh, uh, designation in, in Northern Ireland. So um, I, f I found myself in quite uncomfortable circumstances because I wanted to maintain neutrality, but here I was being housed and clothed and fed by the Catholic population. Neutrality kind of goes out the window, right? And nothing bad came out of it. Nothing was, but what the lesson that I learned was I had to be very much more careful in the future about uh, what type of organization I was going to work with and align myself with without doing the proper research ahead of time. I didn't research carefully enough, um, and I should have done that. But still, it was, a re it was an interesting experience. I've met a lot of very diverse, interesting people there, from people in the British Army to people that I'm certain were IRA members at one time or currently were IRA members, which was a former um, t terrorist organization in Northern Ireland. But I found myself kind of regretting my affiliation or wishing I, I could have gone in with maybe a more neutral organization. So there's a downside to, to not, not a downside to volunteerism, but you have to know what you're getting yourself into before you actually jump in. Yes? I don't know. The question was how many members of the organization were members of the IRA. I don't know. No. I would... The, the question was, could I tell if some of the people were? I could tell you that definitely the, the majority of the people there had, had sympathies. I did as well, I'll be honest with you. I, I had sympathies for, that, for the Catholic Republican side. I came out of there with probably a more neutral, balanced perspective after I was, because after, I should have told you this, after I was the monitor in the summer of 2000, I went back in the fall and was a student at Queen's University. And after I went through that semester at Queens, then I realized that, that I, I, walked, I left Northern Ireland with a much different perspective, a much more balanced perspective as opposed to maybe more one-sided. So uh, thanks for the question. So that was uh, my experience in, in Northern Ireland, and it was a good experience, and I, I, I certainly don't regret it. As I send students every semester to go study uh, every year, I send them to Queens University in Belfast to study. So actually some interesting things came out of my affiliation with Northern Ireland. So if any of you are interested... I'll make a quick plug for, uh, for the Institute of Irish Studies three-week program in July every year. It's a great opportunity. Uh, now, the next incident with that, that, spur, that spurred me to actually create a service learning project with my students was having had the opportunity to go to Russia in 2006. And by this time, I was working here. And I had applied for a Fulbright, a short-term Fulbright grant to go to Russia. And I happily was accepted. It's very difficult sometimes to get... Fulbright grants uh, uh, accepted by the U.S. government. It means the U.S. government funds this project. Generally, it's a $100,000 award and sends faculty from across the country to a particular area. So we went to Russia, and we were only actually in the, the eastern section. Actually, I think it might be better if I use the mouse to show you. We actually never got beyond this part here. And, and Russia is so vast that it could have taken us. We could have been there for you know, months on end probably and still not, not uh, get through everything. But we flew to a city called Perm, which is right here um, in, in more, just in, at the edge of where Russia meets Asia. 
on the edge of the Ural Mountains, and we spent about a week there. And I had, I really, I'll be honest with you, wasn't very much looking forward to going. Cause it was, I wanted to go to Moscow. I wanted to go to St. Petersburg. I wanted to see the cities that I had, you know, heard about and read about. And, and for, it's Perm. What is, what's Perm? And Perm ended up being, it's called Permska is how they call it. Perm ended up being the city that had the most profound impact on me of any of them. Because we visited two places there. One was uh, a former gulag camp, which is a Soviet detention camp where they kept prisoners of war. Well, I wouldn't call them prisoners of war. Prisoners of doing anything from jaywalking to speaking out against the government. Needless to say that freedom of speech was not very valued um, under the, the Soviet regime. So we went to the gulag camp, and we, right before that we visited an orphanage. And I knew that visiting the orphanage was going to, to affect me just because, uh, I mean, how can it not when you see an orphanage? Um, I was warned, forewarned by my mother not to return home with any orphans in tow because she knows me well and knows that I'm likely to, uh, you know, I would be the person to adopt someone and bring them home with me. So I was already under orders, do not adopt any, any orphans and bring them home with you. I took that into account. Um, so we, we went to this orphanage, and just to kind of give you an idea of what it means to be an orphan in Russia, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, it's the traditional little orphan Annie where you've lost both parents. It's more uh, so- social orphans, which are designated by the state as, you know, mom is maybe just not around, dad might be an alcoholic, um, or both, and just there's no one to take care of the child. And since the Russian welfare state collapsed, uh, there's there have been a, a huge increase in the amount of orphans that are in such homes. So we went to this orphanage. I'm going to show you some video, actually, from it right now, um, and then I'll, I'll tell you kind of what came out of it. I should warn you that Steven Spielberg, I am not, so you might find yourself getting a headache from watching my own video because it's not, not the best quality. The children were singing for us, and of course that's going to tug at your heartstrings. Fast forward here just a little bit. They had them performing with these acrobatic acts for us too, and I mean, it was it was this one on for a while actually. The performance. Again, I should warn you that I'm not Steven Spielberg. <laughs> now this little boy right here that you see, I don't have this pet captured on camera because I couldn't at that particular point. Uh, he was he was uh, stenciling something, and when I walked out of the room. Um, I was got halfway down the hall and I felt a little tug at my skirt and I turned and, and he gave it to me. What he and it was this beautiful little drawing of a church that he had done, and I barely was able to keep my composure and I turned around and just of course started sobbing. And I wanted to do. I, I knew right then it felt like there was this moment. I kind of had this seismic shift in my life where I, I knew I wanted to do something to help them. I didn't know what I could do at that point. And of course, you know, the young man over here mentioned before about money. People need money. So right away, my first thought was, let me get my wallet out. And I had some American money. And I went and I gave him $50. Well, $50 is a lot of money at that, you know, in, in Russia, especially for a young boy. And when I told uh, the woman who was running the orphanage that I had given him this money, she said, that's not a good idea. She said, I, I know, she said that the, if the other kids find out that he has it, they will probably beat him up and take the money away from him. And she said, if you feel comfortable with it, I will take the money. I will keep it for him. I promise you it will be used. It will be given to him to go shopping or get whatever he wants to get for himself. But I will not. I will make sure he gets it. 
and I left a little bit more money for the rest of the orphanage. The reason I'm saying that is not to tell you how I gave money to the orphanage, well, but because it illustrated to me a point that I had really good intentions, but I hadn't really thought it through. You can't just throw money at something and expect that it's going to magically make everything better. Uh, I, I didn't think it properly through before. So when I got home after this visit, I knew that I wanted to do something for these kids. And I knew I couldn't, I wasn't in a position to adopt any of them, but I wanted to help them. And so I, in the fall that next year, I uh, worked with my students who incidentally were in this time frame, 2.30 to 3.45, Tuesday and Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, excuse me. And we engaged in a service learning project on a much smaller scale than what you were doing in here. I just, we actually ended up deciding on doing a bake sale on campus and trying to raise money that way. And um, I didn't have very high hopes for it, I'll be honest with you. I was kind of nervous how it was going to turn out. But we managed to raise $400. It was just a, group, a very small group of 10 students who were able to raise this money. And they would kind of cajole people as they were walking by, like, this is for orphans. Can't you buy Rice crispy? Like, what's wrong with you? And so, you know, people would feel guilty in here. Here's five bucks for the orphans. But they managed to raise $400, which I thought was incredibly impressive. And I realized then another lesson. It doesn't have to be huge. You, I'm not Bill Gates. I, I wish I was. I can't go out and give billions of dollars to things. Um, so I can only do what I can do. And in our small little way, we raised uh, $400, and that's going to go tremendously far in that orphanage. Getting the money to the orphanage was also difficult because we had to wire them the money, and it was also a very extensive process. But, again, I thought, well, am I, I'm sending this money over. I can only hope that it's going to get to the, the children who need it. Um, but again, that's one of those things where you have to kind of let go and just kind of hope that it gets there and know that you've done the right thing personally. And, it, and you know, and, and if, the, if it doesn't work out that way, then it's not you. You've done, you've done the right thing. You've made the right gesture. Which brings me to, I know I'm, I'm, I'm uh, okay in time? Okay. Almost done here. To uh, now, to what I'm doing now with my own students. I didn't do anything um, for a few years. That was in 2006, and I haven't done much with my students since then regarding service learning. And I felt like I was kind of getting to a point where I've been feeling a, a bit of a, cri a crisis of, not a crisis of conscience, but I guess crisis of my own journey, sort of a mid-crisis, a mid mid-career uh, crisis. What am I doing in this job? What's my purpose here? Am I going to be super excited and call myself successful if my students can walk out and compose an annotated bibliography of historical sources? Yay. <laughs> you know, it's, a, you know, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a bad thing necessarily. It's going to be useful. But I want something more. I want deeper meaning. And with what I was currently doing, that was not working, what I was doing at the time. So I decided I needed to revise it. So this semester, um, I'm working on a project with my own students it, they're engaging in oral history service learning, where we've been going. We've gone twice to some local assisted living homes in the area, and they are interviewing residents there and getting their stories on record. They're getting their lives on record. And on Thursday, they're going to be presenting uh, a, a visual image of that person's life, and the residents are going to come to campus. We're going to have a little reception, you know, a little to-do. Should be nice. And uh, I realized I, I, that there's a way that I can do it where it doesn't have to be on a, on a grand scale, but where it can still be of service to people uh, without necessarily even involving money. This doesn't involve money, but it's just something that's giving some people a chance to talk to others and, and engaging um, with some young people, which is, I think, something that the residents of these assisted living homes are really, are really enjoying. So if I could uh, just kind of impart to you some, a couple of words of humble advice, take it or leave it, uh, if any of you are interested in, in continuing the service that you've begun in this class, 
it would be, you know, you could, it doesn't matter how big that you're doing. Act local, act small. It doesn't have to be a huge grand gesture. You do whatever you can do that, that can that can suit your time needs, that can suit your careers or whatever. You guys are students, you're working, you're going to school, you've got a lot going on. But if you can find something to do where you can give back to others, whether it's once a month or it's once every six months, but find some way to give to others in some capacity, you're going to get so much more out of it than you're, than, than, I mean, as I'm sure these students who are volunteering can attest to. Right? Don't you walk out of there feeling like you've gotten more out of it than, than uh, you've gotten back? Um, that you've given is what I meant to say, sorry. Um, what's interesting to me is that our, we live in a society, psychologists are saying that we, we live in a society right now where we are more, we've got so much media at our fingertips, communication, we can talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere, and yet people are increasingly lonely, which is kind of odd, don't you think? When we have Facebook, we have this, we have that, but that communication is rather impersonal. So if you find some way to even just engage with a person where you could just t even sit down at a local nursing home talking to somebody for a half an hour, just spending some time with them, just letting people be heard, you don't know what a tremendous impact you may have on that person. So again, writing a check is not the only way. Try to involve your family if you can too. If you can go to some place, um, we have local, we've got homeless shelters right here in Palos Hills. There's a, a homeless shelter that I was volunteering at once a month, and if you think that the homeless problem doesn't exist out here, you're wrong, because it does. When you're seeing the same faces there every, every month, we sponsor it once a month through my church. And involve your friends. Make it something fun that you can do with others, so it's not just, it's not just you, you know, on your own. Bring in other people, too, because you'll be amazed how many people are out there who do want to help, but maybe sometimes just need somebody to kind of give them that little push. Um, and so I guess I would end with uh, some words that my, my colleague, uh, Mike, reminded me of that I guess I had said to him a long time ago, and that is that if it's not going to be you, then who is it going to be? And if it's not going to be now, then when is it going to be? So I wish all of you lots of luck with your future careers and, and just commend you again for the work that you've been doing here today. So thank you very much for your time. Does anyone have any questions? Sorry, any questions or comments or anything? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. Right. It's for, for, mainly, for political prisoners mainly. Um, the camp that, that he's at, he asked the question, this gentleman, about uh, the Gulag camp that we visited in Russia, and that was a, a Gulag camp for political prisoners. Uh, and oftentimes they would house the political prisoners. They would put um, so-called common criminals in with the political prisoners to purposely. They would put a person who was uh, perhaps a considered enemy of the state for having spoken out against the government in with a murderer or with a robber purposely. And uh, the camp that we visited was a camp that actually was um, used up until the 1980s. So when you went there, I actually have video. If you're interested, I can, I can show it to you afterwards. But it was uh, a very eerie feeling because the place had just been, there had been people living in that place just about 20 years before we had been there. So it was a little, still kind of had a creepy, creepy vibe to it. So other questions? about volunteerism or anything else in general? Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. Let's give her one more round. Okay. Now, I, I just want to encourage all of you now to take some time and, and visit all of these fantastic information tables that we have here. We've got organizations 
Mary spoke about easy ways to get involved in our in our very communities, and we've got some ways in this room right now to learn how to do that very very easily. So please let's visit all of these tables. Uh, plenty of uh, uh, folks from our community here today. Also, we've got student tables showcasing the work that they've done for our project this semester. Go to their tables and press them to tell you all about their, uh, their work and ask them lots of hard questions because they are prepared to answer those questions today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.